Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so tonight's the last night we're going to talk about the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. The elections are over, so we're not going to talk about the elections anymore, but we're going to talk about the doctrine of election. And so for a couple reasons, why are we going three weeks on this? Um, A couple reasons. Number one, this is a confusing topic that has created a lot of, like, emotions surrounding the issue of predestination. And so the reason we're taking our time is because I want to clearly explain it. Number two is if, you're, if you've been around Emmanuel long enough, people in the community will say, you're the church that believes in predestination or you're the church that has that strong view of election. And so, yes, we do, but the reason we do is because it's what the Bible teaches. So tonight, we are going to look at election in Romans chapter 9. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 9. And Romans 9 has some of the strongest language on sovereign election. And I don't think it's hard to understand, but I think it's hard to emotionally grasp exactly what Paul is saying. Um, So let's just back up in Romans 8 for just a moment. I know he told you to return to Romans 9, but go to Romans chapter 8, and let's go to verse 30, because this is kind of our key passage of Scripture we've been looking at, the golden chain of redemption. So Romans 8, 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul has already brought up the doctrine or the word predestined in chapter 8. And so as we get to chapter 9... 9, 10, and 11 of Romans really ask the question, okay, what about the Jewish people? Because it appears like the Gentiles are coming to faith in droves during the time of the Acts of the Apostles, during the time that Paul's writing this. What is going on with the Jewish people? So and we're going to take this piecemeal. We're going to go like kind of bit by bit. Um, so Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul has an anguishing concern for the Jewish people. So let's, let's pick up in Romans chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, whose God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is in anguish, in deep sorrow, over his fellow Israelites. Why? That's the question. Why is Paul in such anguish? And here's the answer. In large part, the Jewish people during Paul's day are refusing to believe in Jesus as their Messiah and come to faith in Him alone for salvation. And if you notice, Paul uses some kind of exaggerated language there, doesn't he? 
In verse 2, he says, I wish I, could, I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I'm sorry, verse 3. I had to put my glasses on. For I could wish that I were accursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. What's Paul saying? If I could lose my salvation, I would lose it so that my fellow Jewish people would come to faith in Christ. Now, based upon everything that we know about the Bible, is it possible for Paul to lose his salvation? No. He's using exaggerated language here to show that he is heartbroken. He is sorrowful over the fact that his fellow kinsmen, his fellow Jews, are not trusting Christ. Now, he lists a lot of temporary blessings that the, that the Israelites had. You just go down there and you look and see what he says. He says there in verse 4, They are the Israelites, and to them belong adoption. That means they are God's chosen people. They had the privilege of being God's chosen people. Uh, they have the glory. That refers to the glory in the tabernacle that a God appeared in the great cloud. They had the covenants. All those covenants that God made with Abraham and with Moses and with David. They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the worship. That's the sacrificial system. That's the, the whole issue of the tabernacle and the, and the sacrifices. The promises. All those Old Testament promises given to Israel. The patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then ultimately, what was the greatest privilege that the Israelites had? They brought forth the lineage of Jesus. Jesus was an Israelite. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus came from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the way down to Joseph. So, Israel has a lot of blessings that came for being God's chosen people. But the key question is this. If Israel is God's chosen people, and they've been given all these temporary glorious blessings. They've been given the patriarchs and the, all these Old Testament glorious blessings that, that we just listed there in verses 4 and 5. Then why are so many ethnic Jews not getting saved? Why are they accursed and cut off? Why are the Gentiles coming to faith in large number, but the Jewish people are not? Now, you may not like the answer Paul gives. So let's read verses 6 through 13, and Paul's going to answer the question for us. Okay, so let's read verses 6 through 13. So Paul's in anguish. His fellow Jews aren't coming to faith in Christ. They have all these blessings. It would seem like they would be coming to Christ in droves, coming to their Messiah, but they're not. So let's look at verse 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So why are the Jewish people not coming to faith in large numbers. 
Paul gives two answers, and you may not like the answers Paul gives, but these are the answers he gives. Number one, just because you are ethnically Jewish does not automatically guarantee that you'll be saved. And that was the presumption of the Jewish people. They thought they were automatically going to heaven. They were automatically saved because of their ethnicity, their lineage. I'm a Jewish person, therefore I'm automatically saved. Whether I believe in the Messiah or not, whether I trust in Jesus alone, I'm in because I am a Jew. And what does Paul say there? Paul says, no, that's not true. He says, it's not Though the word of God has failed, for not all who were descended of Israel belong to Israel. Not are all children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. In other words, just because you are an ethnic Israelite doesn't automatically mean you're saved. You've got to believe in your Messiah. So that's number one. Lineage, ethnicity doesn't guarantee your salvation. But number two, here's the answer you may not like. God chooses some people to be saved while passing over others who will not be saved. And this is how God has always done things. Now, how do we know this? Because Paul's going to give three analogies of how God dealt in Israel's history with election. And I want to unpack this and make sure we understand it. So let's talk about the first analogy or the first illustration. Isaac and Ishmael. Okay, so in verses 9, I mean verses 7 through 9, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, Let's ask a question. We're not going to go back to our Old Testament, but let's see if we remember our Old Testament. God had promised to Abraham and Sarah they would have a son. And what happened when God kept lingering and not answering their prayer in the time that they wanted to have it happen? What does Sarah do? Sarah says, hey, I'm going to speed things up. God's timing is not my timing. He's, not, he's taking too long. A- Abraham, why don't you go to Hagar? the Egyptian servant girl, why don't you have relations with her and then you'll have a child? Well, what happens? Abraham says, okay. He goes and does that. Produces Ishmael. And then Sarah gets really upset because he's an illegitimate son and there's a whole conflict in the family. So the question then is, is Ishmael the chosen son? No, who's the chosen son? Isaac. Later on, Afterwards, late in age, God says to Sarah, you're going to have a child, and she laughs. That's what the word Isaac means is laughter. And so she bears Isaac, and Isaac is the son of the promise. So just because Ishmael was a physical descendant of Abraham does not necessarily mean he was the child of the promise. He was part of Abraham's lineage, but he was not the son of the promise. The son of the promise was Isaac. Now, this is a little bit easier to understand why Ishmael was not chosen and Isaac was. Same father, but two different mothers, right? Who's the mother of Ishmael? Hagar. Who's the mother of Isaac? Sarah. But the same dad, Abraham. So God said from the very beginning, I'm choosing Isaac 
to bring the promise to, I'm not choosing Ishmael. So God makes a choice, one over the other, Isaac over Ishmael. Now that's a little bit easy to understand because of two different mothers. But what happens if you have the same mother and the boys are twins? So the first example is Ishmael and Isaac. God chose Isaac. God did not choose Ishmael. What about Jacob and Esau? Okay, verses 10 through 13. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, who's the one man? Isaac, our forefather Isaac, though they, the boys, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election, there's the word, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now this is a little bit more difficult to comprehend because it's the same mother, the same father, and it's not a different mother and it, it, like it was with Hagar and Sarah. It's Isaac and Rebekah. Now, when did God's choice of those two boys happen? What does the Bible say? Before they were born. And was there anything in them that made God choose one over the other? Before they had done anything good or bad. Now, what would you think? God chose Jacob because he was good, and God did not chose Esau because he was bad. Did you ever go back and read that story? Both boys are bad. Both boys don't deserve to be chosen. So, this is what we talked about a few weeks ago. This is an unconditional election because there's no condition that these boys had to meet for God to choose them. It does not say God chose Jacob because dot, dot, dot. Or God did not choose Esau dot, dot, dot. What are the two things we know from this passage? They were chosen before they were born, and they had not done anything good or bad. So there were no conditions they had to meet. So God did not choose Jacob over Esau because of works, Either good works, faith, obedience, or even bad works. Why did God choose one over the other? Read very carefully what it says. Though, verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. What's the only answer you have in this passage of Scripture as to why God did it? It was His purpose. It was God's purpose to do so. Now, you have a couple of words that show up there together. You have works, not because of works, but you have God's purpose, you've got the word election, you've got not because of works, I'm all looking at verse 11, and because of him who calls. Now there's another passage of scripture that's written by Paul that uses a lot of that same language, and we can kind of get an idea of what, what Paul is saying here. So in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul is making a general statement about our salvation, but he uses the same language. 
He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This passage uses some of the same language that you see here in Romans 9 when talking about election. So both speak of God's call. God called us. We'll talk about that next week. Both stress that the call was not based on works. The same Greek word erga or ergon. Both refer to God's saving purpose, God's purpose of election. And then both say that salvation was decided before history. This says before the ages began. This says before they were born. Ephesians 1 says before the foundation of the world. So, in God's sovereignty, it was never his intention to save every single ethnic Jew, but to save some, not all. Now, we have to deal with the very difficult language here that's tripped people up for centuries, and that is in verse 12. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's strong language. You go back to Genesis, and that's what it says, but you also have it in Malachi. Chapter 1, 2 through 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Okay. When we think of the words love and hate, we often think of deep emotion. How could God actually hate somebody and then love somebody more? I've heard some people say, well, this, the word hate doesn't mean hate, it means love less. Does that help matters any? I don't want you to think about emotion here. I want you to think about choice. Was God's choice or love or hate of these twins based upon what they would do or not do? No. Let's ask another question. Did either Jacob or Esau deserve God's love? Remember what I said a few weeks ago? A lot of people start at the wrong starting place. We often start with I we often start with this thought. God has to show love. He's obligated to show grace. He must show mercy. Really we should start with God is not obligated to show any mercy or any love. God's not obligated to do that. He's not obligated to save anybody. So let's take out this whole like emotion like God had deep deep hatred for Esau and great love for, for Jacob, let's think more in the terms of choice, that God made a sovereign choice. Now, at this point, well, I'll, wait, well, I'll get to this in just a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. God chose or elected Jacob. God did not choose or passed over Esau. What does the text tell us? 
It was not because of anything they'd done, good or bad. It was God's purpose. So you have to come to terms with two truths that the Bible teaches that are not contradictory, okay? Truth number one, can we all be in agreement God is love? Yes, God is love. It says it in 1 John. But truth number two, does not the Bible also teach that God does not choose everyone to be saved? Are those two truths side by side in the Bible? God is love, but yet at the same time, God does not choose everybody to be saved. So from this passage, we must conclude that there are no conditions, whether that be foreseen faith or repentance, or good works that are the basis for God's election. His election is according to His own purpose. Now let's talk about objections. Objections, I object, Pastor Sean. Let me give you two other views of this passage of Scripture, okay? So I'm arguing for the unconditional election view, that God chose Jacob because it was His purpose to do so. God did not choose Esau because it was His purpose to do so. And there was nothing in either boy that made God choose Jacob and Passover Esau it was a choice made before they were born there were no conditions it was an unconditional election okay let me give you some other views just so that you can hear some of these objections okay so let me give you the Arminian view or the foreseen view so the Arminian view would say this God predestined people and we, and we talked about this last week God predestined people because he foresaw what they would do When a person exercises faith in Jesus, God sees that faith and then chooses that person because they met the conditions of election, namely faith. So let me ask you a question. In this passage of Scripture, does God foresee anything that Jacob's going to do that moves God to choose him? Is there anything foreseen that God sees in Jacob? Is there anything foreseen that God sees in Esau? No. If Paul would have that faith was a requirement for God's election, don't you think he would have mentioned it as the reason why God chose one over the other? So is there anything in that passage to lead you to believe that God foresaw something in Jacob that he didn't foresee in Esau? So there's nothing in there. Okay. Now, there's another view that I take part way. Because I do think this passage does teach it, but I think it teaches... So... This passage of Scripture, I think, teaches individual election to salvation, but I also think it teaches the corporate view of election or the national view of election, okay? What some would say here is that at this point, the election that God is talking about here is not for Jacob to be saved and Esau to be not saved. The election is for Jacob to be the leader of Israel, to be the one to have the national privilege of birthing the nation of Israel, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes, and that the chosen seed, Messiah, would come through Jacob. Esau wasn't chosen for that. As a matter of fact, Esau's lineage became the Edomites. And so they view Jacob not as an individual, per se, that was chosen for salvation, but as a representative of the nation of Israel, And God chose Jacob and subsequently Israel to be the lineage through which the Messiah would come and have the Old Testament privileges brought through Jesus. They also don't see Esau as an individual. They see him as representative of the nation of Edom, the Edomites. And God rejected 
Esau because of their rebellion as a nation. So the election here that God is talking about, or that Paul's talking about, is not election to salvation, but election to national privilege. Now let me, let me just, I agree with that to an extent. But why is Paul so upset? Why is Paul in anguish? Is Paul in anguish because God chose Jacob to be the leader of the nation and, and didn't choose Esau? No, Paul's in anguish because Jews aren't getting saved. And think about this. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Does it say anything here about nations? I chose Jacob to be a nation because I saw that he would do this, that, and the other, and I rejected Esau because he would become the Edomites and he would be a rebellion. And also, what was the basis of election? Does this sound like national or individual election when you look at verse 11? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This is talking about individuals. So the argument from some is that this whole passage is not talking about individual salvation to, or individual election to salvation. It's not teaching that God chose Esau, I mean, that God chose Jacob over Esau to be saved, but that God chose Jacob over Esau to be the one to bring the nation of Israel into existence and to ultimately bring about the Messiah. Now, yes, I agree that Jacob was chosen to bring about the nation of Israel, and Esau did become the Edomites, but that's not the reason why God chose them, because the, the purpose here is that they had not done another, nothing either good nor bad before they were born. So the bottom line here is this. The corporate or national election doesn't answer the question Paul raises and the angst he feels over ethnic Jews rejo- rejecting the gospel and going to hell. doesn't really answer that. Also, how does the writer of Hebrews view Esau? In the, in the rest of the New Testament, is Esau viewed as a nation or is Esau viewed as an individual? An individual. So let's look at Hebrews 12, 15 through 16. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau failed to obtain the grace of God as an individual. So the apostolic interpretation from the writer of Hebrews sees Esau as an individual who was not saved. Not a nation, but a man who was immoral and unholy and died failing to obtain God's grace. So, I believe Paul is addressing primarily individual salvation. So what's happening here? What's Paul's beef or what's Paul's problem or what's Paul's burden? What's the question? The ultimate question is, go back to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
That's the question. Has God's word failed? Because all these promises were made to the Jewish people and none of them are coming to faith in Christ, so it seems like God's not true to his word. And Paul's like, no, God's word is true. God's word's not failed, and here's the reason why. Here's his answer. It was never God's intention that salvation would come automatically from one's birth or ethnicity as a Jew, but by faith in Christ alone. And then number two, it was never God's intention to save everybody, but to choose individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved by sovereign grace. Now, somebody in Paul's audience called an interlocutor or an argumentative person, and probably Paul had taught this time and time again, and he knew what objections were going to come up. Somebody's going to come up with an objection. What, what, what objection did we, what was the first objection we brought up last week? What did we say? If God chooses some and not others, that's not, what, fair. Okay. This is not a new argument. So let's look at verses 14 and 16. This is the first objection to God's choosing. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So this is the first objection. Okay, Paul, if God chose Jacob over Esau, and it wasn't because they had done something good or bad, it was because of God's purpose in election, then that's unjust. That's not fair. That makes God out to be unjust. It sounds like God should have chosen both the boys. It seems backwards, as a matter of fact, because Jacob was the second born and, I, and Esau was the firstborn. So the first objection there is, God, that's not fair. Do you see it? Right there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What's the, what's the objection? Is God unjust? This, this isn't fair. And what's Paul's answer to that? By no means. So, by Paul's own words, let me, just, let me just answer the objection here. If you say it's unfair or unjust for God to choose some and not to choose others, what's Paul's answer to that? No, it's not. It's not unfair. And it's not unjust. And then Paul goes on to explain he goes and he quotes from Exodus when God appeared to Moses at the cleft of the rock when Moses wanted to see God's glory. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, He said, this is the Lord, Yahweh, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's a direct quote there in verse 15. 
So what is Paul's answer? You may not like it, okay? I'm not saying you have to like it. Or you have to, it sits well with you. But here's Paul's answer. So if you stand up and say, God, I object, it's unfair, you, you, have, you, you, should, you, you are obligated to choose everybody, or it's unfair that you choose some and not others, what's Paul's answer to that? God can choose whomever he wants to choose, and God can show mercy on whomever he wants to show mercy. It's God's prerogative whom he's going to show mercy to. You can't make God show mercy mercy. God is not obligated to show mercy. He's going to do it on his terms. Also, what else does it not depend upon? Look at verse 16. Then it, okay, what's the it there? Let's just, let's look at our Bibles. So then it, what's the it? What does it go back to? When you hear, we have an it there, you got to figure out where does the it belong to? Well, go back and just look at everything that he's just said. I take it back to verse 11. God's purpose of election. Or you can take it to verse 15. God showing mercy on whom he's going to show mercy. God showing compassion. No matter how you look at it, it's God's sovereign choice to show mercy to some and not to others. It does not depend upon what? human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's choice to save does not depend upon human will. That is our decision to believe. Nor does it depend on our doing some kind of work to earn God's favor. Even if you buy the foreseen faith view that God looked down through the corridors of time and saw your faith, what does Paul say here it's not based upon? God's choice is not based upon human will. God doesn't see you making a choice and then ratify your choice. God makes the choice because God chooses to save whom he wants to save. Again, we may not like the answer that Paul gives here, but this is the scripture and we've got to deal with it. The objection, God, you're unfair. Paul's answer, God can do what God wants to do. God can show mercy on who he wants to show mercy. God's not obligated to, to show mercy to anybody. He can show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. Think about this passage of scripture. We looked at it last week too, this Deuteronomy. Um, talking about Israel, but I think it applies to us as well. Let me get some water here. Deuteronomy 7, 7-8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Why did God choose you then? Because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'll say it again. And this is the only answer the Bible gives. Why did God choose? Because God wanted to choose. Well, then why did God want to choose? Because God wanted to choose. Well, why did God choose? It was according to the purpose of his counsel. It was not because of works. It was not because of faith. It was not because of anything that God saw in us that moved him to choose us. It was simply because he wanted to do so, and he was under no obligation to choose us. 
So that's objection number one. God, you're unfair. And Paul says, no, you can't say that because God has the right to show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. If God wants to choose Jacob and not choose Esau, that's God's choice. You may not like it, you can argue with it, but that's God's choice. Okay, so we've talked about two Old Testament examples. Ishmael was not chosen, Isaac was. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. What about Pharaoh? Pharaoh was not Jewish. Pharaoh was not from the lineage of Abraham. Pharaoh was a Gentile. So let's talk about Pharaoh because Paul brings it up. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, this, this gets to a, a tough thing that we need to talk about. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You will hear some people say, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God responded to that and allowed him to go his own way because Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. Let me just tell you what the Bible says, and you, you can make your own determination. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Who's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? God. God announces to Moses beforehand that he's going to do what he's going to do to Pharaoh. This is not simple foreknowledge where God passively takes in knowledge and sees what will happen. This is God's sovereign decree of what he's going to do to Pharaoh. He tells Moses before Moses even goes that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Okay, that's in chapter 4. Okay, chapter 7. Moses hasn't even gone and met with Pharaoh yet. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Twice God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So how does it unfold when Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh? Chapter 7, verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8.15 But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen as the Lord had said. Okay. The example of Pharaoh. What's Paul's answer to the objection that God is unrighteous or unfair in this unconditional election? What's Paul's answer? God has the sovereign right to mercy or harden whom he wants to, and Pharaoh is an example of someone he unconditionally hardened, which was announced by God's decree beforehand. Now, I don't want to get into this tonight because it's a very difficult topic, but here I'll just open up the can of worms. Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is that a one-time example that God did in redemptive history to bring about the exodus 
and it was only specific to Pharaoh, or does God harden people's hearts today? Let me give you my answer. I don't think, for the most part, God hardens people's hearts today because most people are already born in a condition of being depraved and sinful. So let's talk about the doctrine of reprobation. Maybe you've never heard, never heard reprobation before. What's the doctrine of reprobation? What's the exact opposite of predestination? Let me just ask you a very logical question. Here's a logical question. If God chooses some to be saved, what does that mean? What's the flip side of that? There are others that are not saved. The question is, does God choose those people not to be saved? Does God do something in them to make them worse than they already were? What is reprobation? Let me give you the definition. It may be declared or defined as that eternal decree of God whereby he's determined to pass some men by with the operations of his special grace and to punish them for their sins to the manifestation of his justice. Okay. This is going to get a little bit deeper tonight, but just hang with me, okay? Because you may have never heard this before. We talk about the doctrine of election. We talk about God choosing some, but we don't talk about, okay, what about those he doesn't choose? Okay. Reprobation has two aspects to it. The first one's a big weird word I don't expect you to remember. It's called preterition or the determination to pass some men by. Okay, so think of it this way. God actively chooses some, a lot, the rest he just passes by and does nothing to them. So let me ask you a question. If God does not, all right, level playing field, all people sinful. What's, what's, the, what's the destiny of all people if God didn't intervene? Hell, condemnation. Okay, so if God intervenes in some to rescue them out of that, what do the rest of the people get? What they already were going to God doesn't have to do anything in their lives. He just withholds grace and they, he passes them over. So the first part is God passes over some men and then those that he passes over do get punished because they do commit actual sins. So God passes over those he chooses not to save and then he leaves them in their sinful state and they suffer the just consequences of their own personal sin. So, the decree of election inevitably implies the decree of reprobation. If an all-wise, powerful God, possessed of infinite knowledge, has eternally purposed to save some, then he's also purposed not to save others. If he's chosen or elected some, then he has, by the very fact, also rejected others. Now, let's talk about double predestination or what some people call equal ultimacy. I don't expect you to remember equal ultimacy. Okay. Let me explain equal ultimacy to you. This is the hyper view that some people charge 
with our view that's not true. Okay. Equal ultimacy says God acts... Okay, so let's put it this way. In an elect person... God shows grace, God calls, God sends the Holy Spirit, God draws them, God does everything to bring them to faith. God does this work in them to bring them to faith. In the non-elect, He equally works unbelief in them, works sin in them, causes them to sin, and does all this stuff in them so that they will be sinful. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. What equal ultimacy or double predestination is, is that people will say God sovereignly works in the non-elect to make them sin and then punishes them in the exact same way God works in the elect to make them believe through regeneration and brings them to spiritual life. This is not reprobation. So let me just put it this way. Let me make it the easiest way I can make it. Every single person deserves hell. Every single person is dead in their sins and transgressions. Every single person is totally unable to come to faith in Christ because of their bondage to sin. If left in that condition, every single person would end up in hell because of their own personal sin and their bondage to sin. Agree? For some a number that no man can count, God overcomes that by choosing them, by regenerating them, by showing them grace, by bringing them salvation. For others, for reasons we don't know, God passes them over and leaves them in that state, and left in that state, they get hell because that's what all of us deserved in the first place. So let's ask it again. Is God unjust in choosing some and passing over others? Is God unjust? No. Does God have to save both equally? No. We may not like the doctrine. We may not like Paul's statement that God can show mercy on whom he shows mercy. We may not like it, but we have to face what the Bible says. But there's some cautions to this. We have to remember that God did not take innocent creatures and make them wicked and then damn them. Okay, God did permit the fall. Adam chose to sin of his own free will. He plunged himself into sin, and God had a plan of salvation based upon Adam's fall. God didn't make Adam upright and make, make Adam wicked. He did ordain the fall, but Adam sinned volitionally. And another caution God does not compel or work sin into the non-elect, but simply lets them go the natural course of their fallen nature. In other words, reprobation is passing over or not intervening to overcome original sin and guilt and deadness, whereas election to life is God's active work in a sinner to regenerate and call and grant repentance and faith. Okay, so what was the first objection to God's choice of Jacob over Esau. That first objection was in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God's not unjust. You can't charge him with being unjust because God can mercy whom he wants to mercy. God can save whom he wants to save. God can do what he wants to do. And this election is not based upon your running, your working, your choosing. It's any type of human 
initiative put into it is not the cause. It's all based upon God's purpose. Okay, that's objection number one. God's not fair. Paul says you can't say that because God has every right to do what God wants to do. Here's the second objection. Verses 19 through 23. So let's read the second objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right, or has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Okay, here's another hard objection. And maybe you never thought about this one, but this is the second objection. How can God blame people if they reject him? They can't be held responsible for not being saved when God chose not to save them. Cannot a person in hell say, well, I'm here because God didn't choose me? That's an objection. The only reason I'm here in hell is because, God, you didn't choose me. I, I couldn't resist your will. I mean, if you, if you chose me, I'm going to get saved. If you didn't choose me, I can't do anything about it. So I must be here in hell, and I have everything to say uh, or, or every defense to say is because you didn't choose me. And what's Paul's answer to that? <laughs> he doesn't give an answer. What does he say? You may not like it again. Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You have no right to ask that question because God's sovereign. As a matter of fact, he uses a clay analogy. He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This, this goes back to Isaiah uh, 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should be say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the one thing formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Okay, so Ishmael, Isaac. Two sons from different moms but the same dad. Jacob, Esau. Pharaoh. Now you have one lump of clay. But you have two different things coming out of that one lump of clay. What does he say about the lump of clay? Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Okay, so there's one lump. What does he make out of the one lump? One vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So you have one lump, but you have two, two things emerge out of the one lump. So what's the identity of this one lump of clay? It's representative of all humanity, which God unconditionally elects to salvation many while passing over others and leaving them as reprobates. So here's the flow of Paul's analogies. What's Paul been saying up to this point? Esau 
was an individual who was rejected by God before the foundation of the world and eternally lost. Pharaoh was an individual. I'm sorry. Yeah, Pharaoh was an individual who was hardened by God by sovereign decree is an eternally lost. The same lump is very similar in idea to the same womb. From the same lump are made two different kinds of vessels. And from the same womb came two different choices. Jacob, Esau. Now, verse 23 can be very... This is, remember what I said about tonight? This is not hard to understand. It's hard to accept. What does verse 23 say? You've got to deal with it. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, go back to verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So you have vessels of mercy that have been prepared or predestined for glory. You have vessels of wrath that have been prepared for destruction, and they both come out of the same lump of clay. What does it mean that these vessels of wrath and mercy were prepared beforehand? The only way you can look at it, you may not like it, but who's doing the preparation there? Who's making the choice? God's making the choice. For some to be saved, vessels of mercy. For some to be not saved, vessels of wrath. And where do they come from? The same lump. And again, let's just ask the question, is there anything in this passage of Scripture that would lead you to say God made the choice because he foresaw something in the person that moved him to make the choice? Can you see that anywhere in here? Or do you see things like it's God's sovereign prerogative? God's the potter. You're the clay. Why are you talking back? God has the right to show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. It's God's purpose. Again, we may not like the answers that Paul gives us, but he's telling us what God's purpose of election is. Now, the whole issue here has been what? Why are the Jews not getting saved? And Paul rounds this out with verse 24, and what does he say? Even us, whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So basically, Paul says, yes, there's going to be Jews who are going to be saved. There's going to be Gentiles who are going to be saved out of all of humanity. And it's God's sovereign prerogative who those are. It's not just Jews who are going to be saved. It's not just Gentiles who are going to be saved, Jews and Gentiles. And then he quotes Hosea. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. In the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Um, I've got Hosea, I've got the two Old Testament passages there. You can look at those scriptures. Basically, it's a quotation. I want to show you Hosea 1, 6-10. I don't know if we need to read it. Um, in Hosea 2, 3, because Paul basically, um, I'm gonna ha- I need to catch up to where I'm at here. 
That's what Paul quotes from is Hosea there. Hosea chapter 1 and Hosea chapter 2. You are, once you were not my people, now you are my people. And then verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, that's from Isaiah 10, 22 through 23. So God is calling his vessels of mercy a remnant from the Jews. So what's the conclusion here from Romans chapter 9? What do we, what do we learn? What's the issue? Paul is heartbroken over the fact that many individual Jews, his kinsmen, have rejected Christ and are going to hell. And that brings up a question, well, does that mean God's word has failed? If this is so, and Jews are God's chosen people, then, then God's word must have failed, and, and there must be no hope for us as Gentiles also, because if the Jews aren't getting saved, what hope is there for Gentiles? And Paul's answer is no. Hold your horses, here's the answer. God in his sovereign grace has decreed in eternity past not to save every single Jew or Gentile, but to choose some individuals from both Jews and Gentiles to be vessels of mercy, and others to be vessels of wrath. Thus, the election of God is unconditional upon His sovereign prerogative alone. Therefore, there will be a remnant of Jews saved by grace, not because of ethnic lineage or corporate identity, but because of God's sovereign choice to save. Okay, like I said, Romans 9 is... One of the, the most difficult passages of Scripture to navigate through when it comes to the doctrine of election. Again, we may not like what Paul says, but it's pretty clear what he means. So before I conclude here tonight, are there any questions on this passage of Scripture so far? I know it was kind of... Yes, Glenn. Like, where did Paul get this? Okay, so, so let's go back and say, okay, so how did Paul have the authority to teach this? Well, if you go back to the beginning of all of Paul's writings, what does Paul say? Paul, an apostle called by God to, you know, to the church in Rome or whatever. Okay, so Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and then Paul spent three years in the desert of Arabia. And some, most scholars believe that in those three years, Jesus himself taught Paul these truths. So the authority comes directly from Jesus, and by extension, whether it was Jesus personally, it was through the Holy Spirit, because Paul's an apostle. So Paul has the authority to teach this, just like he does any of his other of his writings. I don't know if that answers your question, Glenn. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No. Like I said, you may not like it. I may not like it. But it's those old Prego. Remember those old Prego commercials? It's in there. 
And if it's in there, you got to deal with it. You may not like what's in there, but it's in there. And so you're like, okay. Because a lot of pastors just skip over, oh, I'm going to skip over Romans chapter 9 because I don't want to talk about predestination. It's like, it hits you right in the face there and you got to deal with it. may not agree with what I said tonight. You may have differences, um, but at least you got to deal with it. Okay. Any other questions? Let's get practical and let's talk. We're gonna, this is the final night on the doctrine of predestination and election. We're going to shift gears next week. Um, so what should this doctrine produce in us? I think first of all, election produces a deep humility. Just stop for a moment. Was there anything in you that moved or motivated God to choose you? Were you all that? Were you great? Were you wonderful? Or were you a wretched sinner that did not deserve salvation and God chose to do it? So what, what do we all deserve? Hell. Condemnation. So the doctrine of election should never, ever, hear me say this, should never, ever lead to an elitism or a pride or I'm chosen and you're not, therefore I'm better than you attitude. G Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But as for me, or far be it from me, to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Those of us who believe in the doctrine of unconditional election and predestination should be the most humble of people because we know that God didn't have to choose us, and he did. I've told you this every week, and I'll say it again. There are times in my prayer time where I'll pray to the Lord and say, Lord, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for choosing me because you did not have to. If you had left me in my sin as a reprobate, you would have done me no harm. You would not have been unjust. You would have been perfectly glorious, and I would have deserved every ounce of punishment you gave me. But you chose not to, and for that, I'm eternally thankful. And I'm humbled, because you didn't have to. I couldn't make you. I couldn't earn it. There was nothing in me. So I'm humbled by your choice of me. Therefore, let me be a humble man because there's nothing that I have added to anything. Everything I have comes from you. So number one, it should produce in us a humility. We should never be the frozen chosen that are all excited because we're chosen. It's like, no, we are chosen and it should make us be humble and awestruck. Yes, Brent. No, I did not always believe this. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. So my journey? Okay, so five minutes of my journey. Are you guys okay with the five-minute journey of how I came to these conclusions? Okay, so I grew up in a traditional Southern Baptist church that didn't like have a lot of theology. I mean, I, it was mainly just gospel presentations every week. I knew, I believed in eternal security. You couldn't lose your salvation. But 
I don't think I ever heard a sermon on predestination. I just knew I didn't believe it. So I, did, I didn't know what it meant. Um, and even though I'd read the Bible and see the words like choose or predestined, I kind of probably had more of the foreseen faith view. So me and my friend in college in the early 90s, we actually were so vehemently against predestination and election, they actually wrote a white paper where we were like writing all this stuff against it and we were just like vehemently against it. And I remember in ni- about 1999, Cadman's Call, which is one of my favorite groups now, that Cadman's Call's album 40 Acres came out. And they had that song called Thankful. You guys remember that song, Thankful? I am thankful that I'm incapable of doing anything on my own. It's like totally, like a totally sovereign of God song. And I remember being in the car with Don. I'm like, I hate that song because those guys are talking about how it's all God's sovereignty and choosing and it takes away my free will. And Don just kind of chuckled and like, okay, whatever. And so um, then I started seminary where I had to start learning Greek and Hebrew and I started learning systematic theology. And I was going through John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Those who come to me I'll never cast out. No one can come just working through that in the original languages. Okay, I'm in my office as a youth pastor, and I have a crisis, and I actually throw my Bible across the room, and I yelled at God. Here's exactly what I said. God, I can't believe I've come, I've become what I've hated all these years. You've made me a Calvinist, is what I, that's what I said. I got really upset. Or whatever it was. And so I got really mad and I threw my Bible across the room and then I just started weeping like, Sean, you're stupid because this is God's truth. You can't fight against it. So I went home to Don. I said, Don, I'm having a crisis of belief here because I'm starting to believe in the absolute sovereignty of God and I'm seeing this stuff and I can't get away from it. And Don, the way she is, she, she just calmly just said, well, if it's God's word, you got to believe it then not question it then do what it says. And so um, through that kind of early, late 90s, early 2000, reading systematic theology, going through the Gospel of John, working through some of these things, I became convinced biblically before I even knew what a Calvinist was or what a, who John Calvin was. It was mainly through just reading the Bible because I, nobody had ever explained predestination to me. And I started reading Ephesians and starting reading Romans. I'm like, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. Everything I thought, now wait a minute. Go back, now wait a minute. And then I was going in the original language like, wait a minute, I can't, get, I can't get away from this. And so that's five minutes or less. It was mainly a journey through. I remember, too, I was in, I was in a village inn as a college student, and I was sitting next to a guy. And um, basically, he was a Presbyterian, and... Um, he said, you Baptists don't believe in predestination. And I said, yeah, we don't. <laughs> I got all excited about it and because and, um, I said, I don't want to, I don't, I don't believe in any God that would just choose some people, not choose other people. That's a monstrous God. And then um, he said, well, that's not monstrous. It's biblical that God does that. And it, it kind of shook me for a little bit. So there was a lot of things around that time that, yeah. Does that answer your question? Or Okay. All right, where were we? We got to finish up here. Secondly, Election produces not only humility, but assurance of salvation. Now, you may not agree with this, but think about it this way. If God chose you in eternity past and went to all that trouble to call you and choose you, do you think any chain along the way he's going to leave you to yourself and not get you to heaven? 
In other words, if you got in by your free will, you can get out by your free will. If you got in totally because God got you in, God's going to make sure you're not going to get out. You may fall, you may stumble, but God is going to sustain you to the end, and it should produce in you assurance of your salvation. Not questioning your salvation, but assurance because God started it all the way in eternity past before the foundation of the world. And it says this, excuse me, in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. When did he begin that good work in you? Before the foundation of the world, when he chose you. When did he begin that work in you? When he called you. When did he begin that good work in you? When he regenerated you. And when's he going to complete it? When Jesus comes back. If he started it, he's going to complete it. And that should give you great assurance. And here's one we haven't talked about much, but here's the third one. Election produces a desire for holiness. Um, One of the hyperviews of election that some people could have is this. God chose me. I'm going to heaven. I know it's all of God. So therefore, I can live however I want, because after all, once saved, always saved, and I got my free ticket to heaven, and God chose me so I can live however I want. Is that what the Bible teaches? Let me remind you the passage on election in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So God chose us not just for salvation, but God chose us to be holy and blameless. So election and predestination is never a license for you to go live however you want. Evidence that you are chosen, evidence you are saved, is that you do live a holy lifestyle. And then finally, we talked a little bit about this the past three weeks. Election produces effective evangelism. Now, I didn't share this verse with you. I waited till tonight. But there's a very interesting nugget in Acts. So Paul was in Corinth. He was in Corinth, I think, for 18 months. And he was discouraged when he was in Corinth because he wasn't seeing people come to faith in Christ. It was a hard place. And Jesus appears to him one night. And listen to what Jesus says to him in Acts 18, 9-11. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What does Jesus say to Paul? Keep preaching. Keep evangelizing. Keep going out there and being bold. Why? Why, Paul? What does Jesus say? Because I have many in that city. Many what? Who are my people? Meaning what? There are sheep, there are elect, there are God's people in Corinth that haven't gotten saved yet. And how are they going to get saved? When Paul goes and shares the gospel with them. Jesus does not say to Paul, hey, Paul, it's a done deal. My people are elect. It doesn't really matter what you do. I'm going to save them anyway, so just you know, go home and go back to, you know, go back to wherever you came from and, and, and just pack up shop in Corinth, and these people are going to get saved anyway. Is that what 
Jesus says to Paul? No, he says, don't be afraid. Keep on preaching, keep on teaching, because I have many in that city. It's funny, William Carey, the father of modern missions, had a heart to go to India. And he was part of this group of Baptists that kind of had a hyper view of election. And so he stood up in church one day, this was back in the 1700s, and he says, I have a real heart to share the gospel with the heathen. They call them the heathen in India. And I want to go and give my life to go to India and to preach the gospel and be a missionary. And this old man said, Mr. Carey, sit down. If God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it with or without us. He doesn't need you. God's sovereign. Now, that's a hyper view. And William Carey said, no. Yes, God has chosen people to be saved, but the way he goes about saving them is through our missionary efforts, and so I'm not going to sit down and shut up. I'm going to go to India, and William Carey did go to India, and he's the one that brought the, the gospel to India in the 1700s, and he's the father of modern missions. So the means that God uses to bring about salvation of his people is our evangelism, our speaking. Okay, So let's just look at these scriptures again. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, what? Will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. So if God has given somebody to Jesus, they will come. Not they might come, but they will come. How do they come? We've got to call them. We've got to preach to them. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We have to have people hear the voice of the shepherd. We've got to tell people about Jesus. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They were appointed to eternal life, and because they were appointed to eternal life, they believed. But why did they believe? Because somebody shared the gospel with them. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why? We know God's chosen you. He's elected you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So how do you know you're elected? You believed. When the gospel came to you, it came to you in power and conviction. You believed it. You trusted it. The message came to you. And that's evidence that God has chosen you. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. For what? For salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in, in the truth, it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to this verse over and over again because it combines everything. God called you. How did He call you? Through the gospel. When you heard the gospel, you believed. Why did you believe? Because you were sanctified in the Spirit. Well, why were you sanctified in the Spirit? Because God chose you. But you came to faith through the gospel. So, this ends our three-week mini-study on the doctrine of election. Not the elections, they're over. But election. Questions in the last few minutes we have together. Either it's been very clear, 
the past few weeks where people are like, I've got it settled, or you just don't want to open up a can of worms. And I'm, I'm okay if you open up a can of worms. We've got time for it. So what do you say the next time somebody comes and says, you people, Emmanuel, believe in predestination. You're the church that believes in predestination. How can you believe that? What do you say? Uh, it's what Pastor Sean believes. No, that's not what you say. <laughs> You've got to take him to the Bible. And you can say this. I may not fully, this, you could say this. This is a good, maybe a good answer. I may not fully wrap my mind around all that the Bible teaches on this subject, and I know it's very emotional, and it brings up a lot of emotions, but at the end of the day, I have to submit to what God's Word says, and here's what it says. I may not like it, I may not fully understand it, but I have to believe it, because it is God's Word, and here's where it says it. You can say that about any doctrine. Because it's in the Bible. <laughs> yes, Mark. Okay, so you're asking a lot of questions. So somebody who's actually rejecting the doctrine outright versus someone who doesn't quite understand it. So like there's two different types of people. There's a person that says, hey, this is a weird, this is an unclear doctrine, predestination. I don't have it all figured out. I'm trying to work through it, and I don't quite understand, versus a person that says, I adamantly disagree with this view, and I'm going to dig my heels in, and I don't believe what you believe at all. Is that kind of what you're saying? The emotional difficulty, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, number one, you never want to discount a person's emotions. I think you need to really understand that it does bring up very personal emotions. I remember one time <laughs> Don was teaching a women's Bible study when I was a youth pastor, and my office was right next to the, the room where they were meeting, and Don says, can you come in here and talk about some things? And so... I went in there and started talking about this doctrine, and I remember this one lady got so red-faced, and she got up, and she was, like, screaming and yelling at me, and she, like, I'd never seen that much emotion from somebody over this issue, and it was strictly, she was not hearing what the Bible had to say because she was filled with emotion, so I actually, before I got to what the Bible said, I almost, I had to calm her down just on a pastoral, personal, like, you got to meet a person where they're at and just kind of get those nerves calmed down. And then at some point, you're going to have to say, this is what the Bible <laughs> says. Um, it's, it's hard to navigate those because it does bring up a lot of emotions. So you just got to be sensitive to the person and realize. And, and I think on this doctrine, not everybody's there. I mean, I, it took me, it was, it was a probably a good two-year struggle to get to where I fully understood it biblically and of course I've, I've I've been there for the past 22 plus years and so you know it's settled in my mind but some people are coming along and it's like this is the first time I've ever heard it or I'm not quite sure or 
Um, I, I think this is what it says. I think we just need to be patient with those people and just meet them where they're at. I, I, I don't know how else to... <laughs> yeah, Brent... Mm-hmm. Right. Genesis fifteen six. Wow. No, it was Christ's righteousness imputed to him. Because Paul makes that argument in Romans chapter 4. Yeah, Abraham was saved the same way we're saved. By believing, he believed Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We believe in, he believed in the coming promise of Jesus. We believe in Jesus, so we're saved the same way Abraham was. And when we believe, it's credited to us as righteousness, not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. Anybody else got a question? Do die. All right. So next week, we're, move, we're talking about the order of salvation. Next week, we're going to move into calling. For those whom he predestined, he called. Okay, so predestination takes place in eternity past. Calling takes place at a point in time. What happens when God calls you? What does it look like? What's involved in the call? Does God call everybody in the same way? Is it a call you can say no to? What's the call? All right. Well, let's pray. And if you have questions, I'm always up here afterwards for just a little bit. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, I know this is a tough subject. I know we've spent three weeks racking our brains. But Lord, I wanted us to really just kind of dive into this truth so that we could at least be honest with your scripture, Lord. We may not fully understand all the implications and there may be some out there tonight in this room that um, are still working through this in their hearts and minds. And so, Lord, if anything, this just gives them more scriptures to chew on, to digest, to go home and study on their own. And, Lord, really that's what we want is, is for everyone to be convinced in what they believe and why. And so, Lord, help us to have that wisdom. Help us to have that insight. Help us to obey and submit to your word, whether we like what it says or whether it feels good or whether it, it emotionally um, challenges us. Help us to submit. And, Lord, that, that's difficult at times. But, Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace to us. We love you, and we ask this.